hundred men who end up who end up joining. They find out where David is, and they come and they join David. They are these are people who are. This is where if you ever heard people talk about David's mighty men. Now they're not called mighty men because they're actually mighty. Uh, that word mighty men also turns to they're they're, they're kind of chief servants or chief men or whatever. But ultimately these are there's four hundred men that end up joining David. These are all outcasts and vagrants from society. They're people who who they were they were hated. They were kicked out. All these things and they end up joining David and David takes charge over them. This is kind of where we're at. Uh, and so and then in tw- chapter 23, Saul is on the hunt. He f- is chasing after David again. And this time he's chasing after David, and he gets really, really close. He gets really, really close to David. The, the scripture says that he is closing in on David, right about to get him. And then word reaches him that the Philistines have raided the land. And he has to go take care of the Philistines, and then David escapes. And that's where we're at in chapter 24. And tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. Usually I have kind of like, hey, here's one, two, you know, one point, two point, three point, or whatever. But tonight what we're going to do is we're kind of really just going to walk through the passage. We're going to walk through the passage. I'm going to kind of explain it as we go. And I'm also going to, as we do that, I want to kind of explain it and give some application for you as we will. So it's, if, you've been, if you've heard uh, me preach before, this may seem a little bit different, but ultimately uh, it, gets, it gets the same way, right? So... 1 Samuel chapter 24 is where we're going to be. So if you would, I encourage you to stand as we read. We're going to read the whole chapter, so I hope, you are, I hope you're awake. hope you're alive, right? 1 Samuel chapter 24, starting in verse 1. It says, when, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. That that means what you think it means. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is a day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. You may know uh, and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king come, uh, uh, sorry, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be the judge and give sentence between me and you. See to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? 
And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with, well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, he will let him go away safe. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you shall not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore, to, swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right, you go ahead and grab a seat. So there's a lot going on here, right? There's a lot going on, and you can essentially break this entire chapter into two sections. You can essentially break this entire chapter into two sections. One, there's, there's the events. There's the things that happen. And then the second half is ultimately what is said afterwards. So you have the, kind of the, the, the events, and then you have the dialogue. You have what happens, and then you, say what is, and then you have what is said. As we start out in the very first verse, we see when Saul returned from following the Philistines, right? So he has just fought the Philistines. He has just defended Israel against the Philistines. And then what happens is that he is told that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So I have a few pictures uh, that are at the bottom of the, the slide stuff that you have there. Uh, so I have, I've had the chance to go to Israel twice, and I've had the chance to go to En Gedi once, which is always interesting for me because you read about these places in the Bible and then you get to actually see, oh, they're actually real places, right? And you can actually go there and you can stand there. And these are not, these are not made up stories. These are actually historical events that take place. So the first picture, you can kind of see what En Gedi looks like. So En Gedi uh, is right next to the, the Dead Sea. So some of you may know this, but the Dead Sea is actually the lowest point of elevation. It's the lowest point below sea level in the world. So as you move out from the Dead Sea, it's kind of like a big giant bowl. So as you move out from the Dead Sea, you get into very mountainous areas and, very, uh, and the elevation get, goes up. And what you have in En Gedi there is you, have, you see these kind of like these two canyons right there. That's En Gedi, right? The, the one canyon. You can kind of walk up. So the next couple uh, are just pictures from when I had a chance to go to En Gedi. So this is as you kind of walk up. This is where David is. You kind of walk up. You can go to the next slide. And then ultimately, you see all along the way, you see these caves. And that was very common for people to live in these caves, to hide out in these caves. You can go to the next one. Uh, so that's another view. You can see more caves, more caves, more caves, uh, more caves, more caves. Uh, take think of the, yeah, there's a video. There's animals. And what you say, and at the very top, there's actually a spring waterfall that I forgot to put in there. Um, but the this, this spring, the water flows all the way down. There's a lot of vegetation. There's a lot of animals. Um, it's actually a really, really cool place. Uh, to go. I thought I paced out my, t my, my speaking a little bit more. So as, as you turn back, that's the Dead Sea behind you. Uh, it's a really, really, really cool place. And so here's the thing. Is this is where David and his men are. This is where they are hiding. At this point, David's men is no longer 400. It's now raised up to 600 men. And this is where they are hiding. Now, when, when Saul finds out that da this is where David is, he gathers 3,000 chosen men to go and find David and ultimately try to kill David. Now, this seems a little bit excessive. 3,000 soldiers to try and find and capture one man. But at this point, Saul is desperate, right? At this point, Saul has been striving to find David for a very, very long time. There's no exact timeline given, but we know, but most assumptions, most historians kind of fall into the range that David is running from Saul from anywhere from seven to 10 years 
running from Saul, running for his life. And imagine if you're Saul, you just almost had him, then you have to go back, take care of things, and then that passion is lit again, and you go right after him. And it's every time, the longer it takes you to get David, the more ferociously you are hunting him. Now imagine being David. As a young child, you were anointed to be the next king over Israel. You've waited years. You've waited years to be king, and you're still not king. And you say, okay, I know this is God's promise for me, but it's like, okay, God, I wish we would just kind of hurry up. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. It's like, okay, God, I know that this is what you're going to do, but man, like, I wish we could just hurry up and get there. Right? Anywhere from seven to ten years of him not just waiting, but now specifically running from Saul for his life, living in caves. Imagine, David, you're exhausted. You sleep in a cave when you know you should be seated on a throne. You really don't have a home to call your own. Saul almost catches you. You finally get away, and then you hear, you look back, and now you see 3,000 men coming for you. If you're David, all you want is for this to be over. All you want is for God to just hurry up and just, just do what he says he's going to do. Like, God, why do you have me sleeping in caves and in deserts? I want to kind of help give you a picture, right? I kind of gave you this picture of what it looks like. You kind of see what it looks like. So then, as ultimately, this is where David is, and then there kind of comes to verse 3, and he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Real life. When nature calls, nature calls, right? Of those percentage of people that prefer to go home before going to the bathroom, Saul was not one of them, right? Saul walks into this cave to relieve himself. And then what does the next part say? Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So Saul approaches this cave. He enters this cave. The presence of the sheepfolds indicates that it is a larger cave. And the reason for this is because ultimately it 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 was not uncommon for shepherds to actually at night to keep their sheep in the caves while they're not out in the fields. So this indicates that it is a larger cave, plenty large enough for David and his men to be hiding in. And when nature calls, Saul enters into the cave to go to the bathroom. This seems to be a strange detail to add, right? Like, why would he add this? But I think it's important, and it's good for us to be reminded of something, like, and not even trying to be funny, but, like, these are real people that we're reading about. Real things happen. And not, again, not to be funny, but there are not many positions where Saul could have been more helpless and more vulnerable than in a cave going to the bathroom. I mean, he is at, at this point, he is as vulnerable as you could possibly be. This will happen again later where David will again have an opportunity to kill Saul. And then the second time, Saul is sleeping in his tent with his spear stuck into the ground next to his head while he sleeps. And David will grab the spear and then leave with it. And ultimately, when Saul wakes up, David's over by the way saying, hey, see this? Guess what I could have done while you were sleeping? I saw I was in a very vulnerable position. Now, I want you to imagine this picture, right? Of all the caves in the Judean desert, all the caves that you could possibly go into, and there are thousands of caves, Saul happens to enter the cave that David is hiding in. He happens to walk into this cave, and when he's cut, because he's going to the bathroom, he has no guards, he has no weapons, he has nothing. It is the perfect opportunity, if you are David, Saul is on a silver platter. He is right there by himself. The question is, is this a coincidence? I would say no. 
I believe that God ordained everything in this story. God ordained everything in this situation to take place. God ordained where David would hide. God ordained where Saul would walk. He even ordained when Saul would have to go to the bathroom. And why do we, is this important? Because we need to understand that God is intricately involved in every detail of your life. Everything. There is not a, there is not a hair on your head that falls out that God does not know about. There is not a tear you shed that God does not catch. Every aspect of your life, God is intricately involved in. But here's the question, right? Why would God do this? Why would God bring Saul into this position? Because ultimately we see that it's not God's will for David to kill Saul. So why would God do this? Why would God put Saul in front of David like this? Ultimately, it's because God is testing David. God is testing David. He's training David. And what we see is that David's actions are going to be a way for David to not only teach Saul, but also to teach and be an example to his men. Now, remember, David knows that the only thing standing before him and the throne, like, think about the significance of this. The only thing that stands before Dave, between David and the throne of Israel is Saul. And Saul is right there. And Saul has no idea that David is right there. Saul is now directly in front of him, and his men encourage him to take action. His men tell him to take action. Verse 4, the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Here's the thing. David's men have been sleeping and they have been sleeping in caves and suffering just like David has. Right? They've been sleeping in the caves. They've been suffering right in front of them. They see their moment. In an instant, they can go from fugitives to friends of the king in a moment. All they need is for David to do what David could have done, and boom, their life is changed. Their life is, in an instant, different. Instantly different. They tell David, this is God. God has given this man right in front of you. God has given you this opportunity. And here's the thing. It's very likely that they're extremely genuine. Right? They're not doing this out of selfish ambition, but they're, they're, they're genuine. They think, man, like, here it is. Now, there are a few very practical things that I, could, I think we can learn from this, right? A few very practical things that I think are good for you to learn. Here's one. Not all advice is good advice. Not all advice is good advice. This is very important for you to know, especially at this point of your life, because a lot of the decisions that you make now will carry into your future. A lot of the decisions that you make right now, some of you are like, I'm in middle school. Yeah, well, you know what? There are people who can ruin their lives in middle school. Or they can set themselves up for success in middle school. And you are going to be in moments where you need advice or where you seek advice. Throughout your life, you have moments where people will attempt to give you advice. And here's the thing. This is good. Advice is a good thing. It's good to receive advice. In fact, the Bible encourages us to seek godly advice. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. I want you to know something, that the day that you stop listening to advice is the day that you need to realize you have a serious problem. And here's another thing that I mean, is that when an adult leader, here's an example, when an adult leader 
tries to speak wisdom into your life and they say, I've been there, trust me, and you don't listen to it, that's on you. Think about that. If, if someone has walked in your shoes before you and is telling you, I know what you are about to do, don't do it, and you still do it, that's on you. Like, you have people around you that are begging you to take their advice. And Scripture says that the person who doesn't listen to advice is a fool. And we can go on with more and more verses, but the point is this, that we should listen to the advice of others. But here's the thing that we should always keep in mind, that not all advice is good advice. Not all advice is good advice. Were these men genuine? Yeah. All they wanted was to help David. They saw this as a perfect opportunity, and they offered to David what they think he should do. Nevertheless, no matter how genuine they are, they are wrong. They are wrong. This is not what David should do. God is not giving David this opportunity to kill Saul. And I want you to know that not everything your friends tell you to do is, good, is a good idea. Not everything your friends say is a good idea. Now, I know some young people who give really good advice. So, right, so I'm not going to say that everything your friends say is a bad idea. But here's the thing you have to know. Just because someone says it doesn't mean that it's good. Remember, these men would also benefit from David killing Saul, wouldn't they? They would absolutely benefit if David killed Saul. They wouldn't be running for their lives either anymore. So even while they may have been genuine in their concern for David, it's also very likely that their, that their own desires potentially influenced the advice that they gave. So here's another tip for you. Whenever you seek advice, try to seek advice from people who stand nothing to gain from your situation. We're going to be very practical tonight. Very practical. Whenever you seek advice, try to seek advice from people who stand nothing to gain from your situation. Because even if people aren't trying to be selfish, you can't help it. This is why seeking advice from people who are older than you is very, very helpful. Very important. People who have been where you've been, people who are above the situation and can give you insight that people in the midst of the situation don't have. So first thing is that not all advice is good advice. The second thing is this, is that we should be very careful when attempting to speak on God's behalf. What did David's men tell David? What did they say? They said, this is God. God is giving this to you. God has given you this opportunity. God has given you this moment. God wants you to do this. Now, we know that this is not what God wants David to do. These men, while they have good intentions and are speaking on behalf, they have good intentions, they're speaking on behalf of God and they're putting words in God's mouth. Now, I want to I be very clear, right, that that. Whenever, so whenever I preach, right, I have my Bible open and I'm preaching God's word to you, I am, I, I am teaching you, I'm speaking to you on God's behalf, essentially. This is why whenever a preacher gets away from the Bible, that's where they get into trouble. Because they're claiming to speak to you God's word. This is why I try very hard to just stick to the Bible because as long as I say this is what God is saying and I'm reading it from his word, then it's hard to go wrong. Verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem fit to you. 
See, God's message to David was that he would deliver the Philistines into his hand. If you go back to chapter 23, verse 4, you see this. Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David's men probably assumed, well, the Philistines are David's enemy. Saul is clearly David's enemy. So clearly this is what God meant. This is what God's trying to do. So go for it, David. Here's the thing. We need to be very, very careful when we give advice that we should be very, very even more, sorry, we should be even more careful when we attempt to speak to someone on behalf of God and say, God is telling me to tell you this. Now, I want to be, again, I want to reiterate. I believe that there, are, that there are absolutely times where God will tell you to, that God will give you specific impressions to tell people certain things, right? But if you go to someone and say, God is telling me to tell you this, and you don't have scripture to back it up, you should think twice. Think twice. God is telling me to tell you to date this person, or God is telling me to tell you to take this job, whatever. It's like, I'm not saying that that's not true, but you're either right or you're putting words in God's mouth. So be very careful. Be very careful. These men were incorrect in their assumptions. They were wrong. There are many times when people attempt to speak on behalf of God and they will, and they will do so falsely. We should be very careful to avoid this mistake. Verse 5, afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now I want you to think about this, right? David walks up to Saul, and Saul has no idea. Again, remember David. Everything he has ever wanted is right here. All he's got to do is take it. All he's got to do is take it. Now, we don't necessarily know for certain how David does this. Right? Did, like, was Saul here and he literally walked up to Saul and cut it off of his robe like this? Most likely what happened is when Saul went to the bathroom, he took his robe off, set it down. But either way, David is, you know, Mere feet away. He's mere feet away. He's mere feet away from Saul, and he cuts Saul's robe. Now, whenever you see this idea of, of the robe, right, it's always significant, especially in 1 Samuel, right? Remember what happened when, Saul, when, when Samuel told Saul that the kingdom was going to be taken away from him, that he was no longer going to be the king. What happened? He grabbed Saul. He, gra- he grabbed Samuel. What happened? The Samuel's robe tore. And, God, and what does Samuel say? He goes, just as this robe is torn, God has torn the kingdom away from you. We see this a lot. Now, the robe of the king was the symbol of his power, and David cutting the robe was symbolic of what he was doing. It was symbolic. That's why he, his heart struck him when he cut the robe, because already he had put his hand out against God's anointed king. So why did he not kill him? Why did he not kill him? I love this part of the verse. It says what? David's heart struck him. Immediately, we see conviction come upon David. He's convicted. And where does this conviction come from? Ultimately, it's, there's twofold. It's one, it's it's David's conscience, but 
Secondly, I would argue that this is evidence of the Holy Spirit. What do we see when David was anointed to be the next king of Israel? What does the pastor say? It says at that moment, the Holy Spirit came upon David. And I would say that what we see here is the Holy Spirit convicting David of sin before he does it. And I want you to know that one of the clearest evidences of someone who is a Christian is that the, the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin. Convicts them of sin. It says David's heart struck him. We see this similarly happen to the people that hear Peter preach at Pentecost. Do you remember? When Peter preaches at Pentecost, what does it say? It says that they were cut to the heart. What is this? This is evidence of the Holy Spirit. I want you to know that conviction of the Holy Spirit is something that we should embrace. When God convicts you of sin, it is a gift of grace. It's like this, like, whenever you, whenever you, like, let's say, like, there's an iron, and you touch, you touch the iron. What happens? It's hot, and what happens is that that, sin, that signal goes through your hand, goes and tells your brain, that's hot. Your brain tells your hand, ow, that hurts, take your hand off. What, that pain, what is that pain? That pain is protecting you from permanently damaging yourself, Right? That pain is protecting you from permanently damaging yourself. Whenever I've, I've gotten uh, fillings, right, from the dentist, which unfortunately is more than I would like, and they numb, like, half your face, and you feel like your face is melting. I don't know if anybody's been here. They say, don't eat anything until you have feeling back in your, in your face. Why? Because you, you'll be eating, and you'll just chew straight through your cheek, and you won't realize it. Why? Because the pain is keeping you from doing something that could permanently damage yourself. Similarly, the Holy Spirit acts the same way, where the Holy Spirit will cause conviction to keep you from doing something that is far worse. Or when you do do something, it's convicting you to tell you that that is wrong. David had received bad advice, but what kept him from acting on this bad advice was the discernment of the Holy Spirit within him. So, he, so here's the thing I want you to keep in mind. Whenever you have a big decision to make, those of you who are seniors, or those of you who you're considering a job, or you're considering dating somebody because you're old enough, if you're old enough, Right? Whatever it may be, whatever this decision in your life may be, or you're considering marrying somebody at some point, whatever the decision is, here's what you need to do. You need to receive advice, but ultimately, when you receive advice, you need to allow the Holy Spirit to guide your decisions. Let the Holy Spirit guide your decisions. Pray about it. If all you do is receive advice, but you never pray about it, you are not doing what God has called you to do. You receive advice. You pray about it. Ultimately, David decides not to act. This is the main focus of the passage, that David does not take things into his own hand. He doesn't take matters into his own hand. He knows that he must trust and wait on God. David refused to kill Saul. And why would he do this? I mean, God, like, God has told David that he would be the king of Israel, Saul was seeking to kill David. David could have just said it was self-defense. I mean, this man's actively trying to kill me. I could have, could have just been self-defense. 
David could have taken Saul's life and seemingly have been just in doing so. But imagine being David, right? Imagine this. You have been running for your life for years. You have lived with the Philistines. You have lived in caves. God has promised you that you would no longer run for your life. At some point, you would be king. And the only thing that's standing between you and the fulfillment of God's promise is this man, Saul. And you have an opportunity to do something about it. Here, right before you, is everything you have ever wanted. The men who are with you are about to go from being vagrants hiding in caves to now being servants of the king. Think of all the people David could have helped. 600 men he could have helped. Obviously, David was a better king than Saul. That's why God was going to make David king. There's so many reasons that he could have done it. So many reasons he could have done it. Why would you not act? Because David understood something that is crucial. Where God is leading you is important. How you get there is just as important. You with me? Some of you don't know where God's leading you. And you know what? That's okay. You have time in your life. Right? You're like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't know what, what God's calling me to do. That's okay. You got time. Even those of you who are seniors and you're panicking, relax. Okay? You have time. You have time. Some of you, you feel like you do know. You feel like you do know what God's calling you to do. I, I feel God calling me to, to do this. Or I feel God calling me to do that. Or I feel God calling me to do whatever it may be. Here's the thing. That's awesome. How you get there is just as important as if you get there. The destination is, is, sorry, the journey is just as important as the destination. Saul was the current king of Israel. David knew it would be wrong to kill Saul because Saul was put in place by God. He was the anointed king of Israel, even though David knew that Saul was a bad king. But David understood that it was God's job to take care of Saul. Not only this, if David was to take the throne by force, what precedent is he setting for the rest of the nation of Israel? While it may have been immediate gratification, it would have left lasting consequences. David wanted God's promise to be fulfilled, but he refused to seek to fulfill God's promise through his own disobedience. This is very similar to Jesus. Remember this? Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. What happens when Satan takes Jesus up to a very high mountain and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world? What does he say? He goes, all of this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. Now here's the funny thing about that, right? Is that those were all Jesus's to own anyway. Jesus was to inherit all the kingdoms of the world. He was to have all of this. But what, so, so that's not the temptation. What was the temptation is that Satan was offering it to Jesus and he was saying, hey, you know, you can bypass the cross and take it now. Why suffer on the cross when I can give it to you right now? Why go through all of that when it's available to you right here? What do we see is that David, like this type and shadow, this foreshadowing of Jesus, right? Being tempted to take what was rightfully his, but to take it in the wrong way, and he refused. Here's another piece of advice for you, and this is probably one of the 
biggest pieces of, pieces of advice that I have for you tonight. Not every open door is meant for you to walk through. Not every open door is meant for you to walk through. Where we get into trouble, I want you to really pay attention to this, where we get into trouble is when we use our own wisdom to determine what doors we can walk through and we allow that to lead us into trouble. Here's the thing. If the way you go about living your life is if the door's open, I'm walking through it, that's a dangerous way to live. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. For instance, just because you can date a person doesn't mean that you should date that person. Just because you can take this job doesn't mean that you should take this job. Just because you can go to this college doesn't mean that you should go to this college. You with me? This is, I can speak from experience. When I was in high school, I, I, I was insecure in high school, right? I didn't, I, I don't know. I was, I, I was kind of insecure, especially like physically. I wasn't super, like, wasn't super feeling myself, you know what I'm saying? And what happened was, is that I, I just felt like I wanted a girlfriend to validate me, Right? I just felt like, I felt like I was less than. I felt like, man, I needed this to be able to, to validate who I was, to, to validate me in the eyes of other people. But I just, I don't know, right? Then I found out that there was a girl that liked me. Now, I did not like this girl prior to this, but I found out there was a girl that liked me, so guess what? Oh, there's an open door. What happened? And, and I'm, being, I'm, I'm being vulnerable with you right now because I want you to understand something, right? Is that, oh, I found out this person liked me, so I started to like them back, and I ultimately dated this person, and I wasted their time, and I wasted my time, and all I did was lead to hurt. Why? Because I just saw an open door, and I was like, oh, I got to go through it. Rather than pray about it, I just saw, well, I can, so why not? See, what determines what doors you walk through? Is you just see whether it's open or not? Or do you pray and you seek God earnestly? See, we don't like to do this because this means we have to wait, and we don't like to wait. We like to just act. This is where God's word must be our driving motivator. David knew not to act against Saul because he knew what God's word said. He knew what he was supposed to do, what he was not supposed to do. Every piece of advice that you get, every decision that you make, you should first and foremost measure it against God's word. Measure it against God's word. There are many people, there are many times when people will give you advice that is just against the Bible. And so many people, here's the thing, I'm just going to be real with you, so many Perhaps so many of you, when someone gives you not biblical advice, you don't even know it because you don't know your Bible. You don't know. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But there's these statements that people make all the time and they act as if it's in the Bible when it's not. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible. Or all these other statements that are not in the Bible but they just sound good, so we go with it. Here's the thing. It may make sense in your mind, but if it goes against Scripture, then it's bad advice. 
So how do we avoid this? We know God's word, and we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Spend time in prayer. Spend time reading the Bible. So David chooses not to act, and he convinces his men not to act. David could have just said, look, I'm not going to do it, but if one of y'all wants to do it and I'm not looking, then I mean, okay. No, because David is genuine. David understands, look, if God's going to give me the kingdom, he's going to do it in a way that glorifies him. So we kind of see the, the actions, but then we see what happens afterwards, the dialogue. After sparing David's life, or sorry, after sparing Saul's life, we see David call out to Saul. Saul does what he has to do, walks out of the cave. David follows him out of the cave. And what does he do? He goes, and he, sh- and he shows, hey, look at this. This is the corner of your robe. You big dope. No, he didn't say that, right? Right, but look, this is, this is what I could have done. Think about what I could have done. And I don't know about you, but man, this is like one of the biggest flexes in all of the Bible. I could have done this, but I didn't. But what does he say when he calls out to, to Saul? What does he do? It says he bows down and he shows homage and respect. I'm like, David, hold on, man. This is the dude who's been trying to kill you, remember? This is the dude who's been trying to murder you. Why are you bowing down to this guy? Why are you showing homage to this guy? And it seems from the text that everything David is doing is totally genuine. How could he do this? How could he do this? I mean, this this man has been seeking to kill you, and you show him respect? Here's an important point. David refused to hold on to bitterness and anger. How do we know this? Because if you read Psalm 57, like we read last week, if you read Psalm 34, like we did on Sunday, what do you see is that David understood that ultimately it was not his to deal with, that God would deal with it. God would deal with it. And what did that do? It freed David to not have to hold on to it. Understand this, that if David would have held on to his bitterness and his anger, I guarantee you that there's no way he could have kept himself from killing Saul. There's no way. What do you see? Ultimately, David's private devotional life manifested itself in the way that he acted. And some of us, we don't know how to act when the time comes because we have no devotional life. David refused to hold on to bitterness and anger. He took his hurt to the Lord. Like we saw in Psalm 57, like we see in Psalm 34. And it's very likely that if David had not taken his pain, taken his hurt, taken his questions to the Lord in prayer, he would not have been able to keep himself from sinning in the cave. You see, David gave his hurt to God, and when the time came where he could exact his revenge, he chose not to, because David had no bitterness towards Saul. I'll be real with you. David is probably a better man than I am. David humbly respects Saul as king, even though Saul doesn't deserve it. Verse 9, And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? David's asking, Why are you listening to people who are telling you that I want to harm you? David's like, Man, I lived in the palace with you. He's like, David, I'm running from you, home slice. Why are you listening to people? Interestingly enough, right? David is showing Saul, hey, if I wanted to hurt you, I could have. And what, David's pro- what Saul doesn't know is that David's saying, hey, my men told me to. 
and I chose not to. Verse 10, behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you, excuse me, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you. Here's the thing I want you to keep in mind. This is, I gave some, somebody some, this advice a couple weeks ago. When it comes time for someone to stick up for you, like if you've been accused of wrong or whatever, here's the thing. Make it easy for them to stick up for you. It's very likely there may come a time in your life where someone accuses you of doing something. You know what? If you want me to stick up for you, make it easy for me to stick up for you. And how do you do that? Live your life in a way to where I say, man, if someone accuses you of something, I'm like, man, that just doesn't seem to line up with what I know to be true about that person. Make it easy for people to defend you. David's saying, look, man, people can accuse me of stuff all day long, but look at the evidence of my life. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. See, David, it's not that David doesn't want justice. It's that David understands that God will take care of the justice. He trusts God to do it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. David's saying, look, man, if you just leave me alone, like, why are you coming after me like this? I'm not doing anything to you. May the Lord therefore be the judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. How much of our problems in life come as a result of us seeking to defend ourselves? How much of our problems in our life are us seeking justice on our own terms? David knows that what is his by promise was not his to take by force. David trusted God. He he has learned it is best to wait for God. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul weeps. What you're ultimately going to see is that Saul is a broken man. We may not know why he weeps, but Saul is confronted with his wickedness. And here's the thing, what is it that shed light on Saul's wickedness? It was David's righteousness. David's righteousness shined light on Saul's wickedness. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. What does he say? He goes on to to talk about this, and he goes on to basically confess that he's been wrong. He has wronged David. We see the words of a broken man. Saul is broken. He acknowledges now what is obvious to him. David will certainly be king. And at this moment, you think, man, there seems to be some reconciliation here. It seems to be good, but... What you find is that while David, while Saul in the moment says the right things, what you see is that it ends up, and it may even be genuine, but what you see later is that it doesn't last. Because he ultimately goes back to trying to kill David. And this moment happens again where David could have killed him and doesn't. And Saul says the same things. Why? Because he's caught up in the emotion of the moment. What you see is that his repentance is not genuine. And here's something that I want to be very, very 
very, very clear about. There are a lot of people who will make decisions for Jesus in the heat of the emotion of the moment. But what you find as time goes on is that it wasn't real. I would be willing to bet that there are people in this room who if you have placed your, you, 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 there was a moment of, of high emotion and you made a commitment to Jesus or you did this or you did this and over the course of your life what, has, what the evidence shows is that emotional moment was not real. So the question is this, how do I know if I'm actually saved? How do I know if my commitment to Jesus is actually real? You want to know how you know? Time will tell. Time will tell. Over the course of your life, do you see yourself growing more into the image of Jesus? Do you see yourself growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Do you see yourself growing in a hatred for sin and a love for righteousness? It's not perfect. This doesn't mean that you don't have bad days. It's kind of like, it's, it's not like once you get saved, this is the trajectory of your life. It's kind of like this. It's here, and then you have a bad day, and you have a bad day, and then you have a bad day. But ultimately, while you may dip a lot, the trajectory of your life over the long haul is you are becoming more like Christ. Is that true? Because the Bible says that that is the guarantee of the Christian. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Is there conviction when you sin like there was for David? Or is it just an emotional moment that will eventually wear off after camp? There's things that I see all the time when we have camp. And we have those reflection nights. And I see people sob. I have people even sob in my arms. Fast forward two months, and they're exactly where they were before camp. Why? Because anybody can get emotional, but it takes the Holy Spirit to change you. This is why, I'm going to be honest with you, this is why I'm hesitant to do these like, hey, if you want to get saved, come to the front. Or repeat this prayer or whatever. Why? Because, one, we never see that anywhere in the Bible. What is, what is it we see in the Bible? It's repent and believe. If you want to talk to someone about it, absolutely we could talk about it. But don't allow, yes, and here's another thing. Emotions are not bad. Yes, emotions should be present in your walk with the Lord. When you, it is emotional. But your walk with God should not be determined on your emotions. 